How is magic comparable to water? How much damage can a level one wizard do to a river? What is hard magic versus soft magic? And what's more effective, a bucket or armpin wheels? I'm Carrie. I'm Josh. And I'm Monica. And this is the World Builders Podcast. Carrie. I'm Josh. And I'm Monica. And this is the World Builders Podcast, because you can't build a planet without a plan. In this podcast, we, your hosts, explore settings and genre fiction by crafting them here and now for you, our listeners. The last time we talked about the history of the continent and how humans developed in the world. And now we are dedicating an entire episode to something that you've heard us mention in passing quite a few times as we've been talking about the development of the world and these other races. And that is the magic of Xanthuru, and specifically as it exists on the continent of Alteran. And I have new 10 ounce of Sprite. Send to us a great big night. It's magic. <laughs> That's an Animaniacs reference for those of you at home who are as old as we are. <laughs> Oh, man, I miss the Animaniacs. Right? They got away with so much for a quote-unquote kids show. (laughs) Let's be honest. Animaniacs is one of those shows that was written for the parents. Oh, absolutely. 100%. They have to watch it, too, so... (laughs) So, yeah, magic. So, in modern genre fiction, there's a lot of discussion back and forth of the merits of pros and cons, which one is better or worse, hard magic or soft magic. Um, Hard magic being, of course, something like Allomancy from the Brandon Sanderson novels, uh, Surge Binding, something hard and bound by multiple explicit rules. You do a B thing happens. Um, Soft magic being more along the lines of Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time, where there are certain methodologies to doing certain things, but it's a little bit more flexible, a little bit more kind of left up to the imagination as to how these processes are taking place. You know, you can say that a character performed a certain weave, but it's not described exactly what that looks like or, you know, the intricacies that go into it other than saying it's easy or it's hard. Um, so where are we falling on, on that particular scale? Extremely soft and squishy. <laughs> so a lot left up to interpretation of those using the magics then. Almost completely up to the interpretation of the individual using it. So what are some things that it, that it conventionally gets used for? Like what are, what are some things that come to mind when you think of people tapping into that lay energy uh, that runs across the planet? A lot of it depends on the type of people using it. Uh, as pointed out in, de- in their individual little blurbs, the Berylenx and the Silva tend to use it a lot for agricultural work, whether it's uh, shaping treetop homes in the case of the Silva, or augmenting slash just straight out growing crops in the case of the Berylenx cultivating you know their forest so on and so forth uh, a lot of general application for healing as well amongst the assorted races but it, like i said it really depends on who exactly is using it as to what is the most common slash correct work 
And what are some of the rules that do exist in the system? Obviously, even though it's like you say, a super soft and squishy system, before we can determine what our characters can do, we still need to know what they can't do. And even the softest magic systems are going to have a couple of rules. So kind of describe to us what those are and what you had in mind when you created the system. So the hardest rule I say applies to the manipulation of lay energy, channeling as it's referred, is that because this energy is a naturally occurring positive influential force on the world around it, it is nigh impossible to use lay energy to cause direct harm to something. You can't pull from a line and use that energy to snap someone's bones or rend open their flesh. Full stop. It, the energy will basically refuse to do that. It has no inherent desire of its own, no intent to actually cause harm. So no death words like in Aragon. Basically. No death words, no bale fire, uh, drawing back to the Wheel of Time parallel. It just does not want to cause harm. So, so you can use it to sort of power something that, uh, like a device that might cause harm, but you can't make it cause harm. Correct. Or you could hurl lightning at the rock underneath someone's feet or create a ball of fire and throw it in the direction of the thing you want to hurt, but you cannot cause a living being to spontaneously burst into flames. Also correct. Because as far as delay energy is concerned, if you are using it to generate fire, it does not have any clue what your intent to do with that fire is. You could just as easily be trying to start a campfire to cook for someone as, you know, lob it into a crowd of civilians. I, do, I don't recommend doing that last one. No, I don't either. <laughs> Although, let's be fair, that is very much in human nature because we have flamethrowers. That's true. We really and like the flamethrower to... exists because someone said, man, I really want to set that person on fire, but they are way over there. <laughs> I really like, I mean, obviously, like we created the flamethrower. We think flame is, we think fire is really cool. Like that's basically... <laughs> Boy, if you think fire is cool, have I got surprises in store for you later on in our series. Ooh. Ooh. So how dependent on proximity to a ley line or a node is channeling? If a channeler is out in the boonies and they're having to cross an area that maybe is a little bit more desolate in terms of not having a lot of lines or the lines that are nearby are on the weaker side, is their channeling going to be weaker or does that depend on, more on an individual's power and skill in terms of how much they're able to draw out of limited resources? The answer is yes. So basically it breaks down to a couple of different factors in that particular scenario. Yes, it is a network of lines that crisscross the entire planet. There are going to be lines that are larger than others, smaller than others. It's a lot like our own vein network. You're going to have some arteries. You're going to have some capillaries. It's not all uniform. And some areas are going to have more or less of these networks than the others. So individual results may vary. But by and large, when you're only near little piddly capillary lines, 
you will have to work harder to draw sufficient energy to do what you are trying to do as if you were standing on a major node that you would find in some city's metropoli. And of course, the more skilled you are, the easier it is to do that. Correct. That, uh, that image of it, it sort of reflecting our, our like veins system um, brought up a question that I have. Oh, goody. <laughs> Yay, questions. So is it possible to, or has it been tried, I guess, to change where the ley line is on the planet? Like, can, you, can, can the ley lines be moved on purpose, I guess, is the question. That's a very good question. I can say that it has been attempted in the past. I cannot currently say how well it worked out for the individuals trying it. Okay, that's that's fair. I like that it's been attempted because because it's interesting. I will be very interested to find out how that went for them because I'm going to guess my my theory. I will tell you my theory. You do not have to confirm or deny. It does not matter. My theory is that it did not go well for them. <laughs> I mean, for all we know, it wasn't, you know, the Garex and Delconis' creations overdrawing on the light that caused those two nodes to explode. It may have been one side or the other trying to deprive the other one of light by redirecting a ley line. Right, right. Well, yeah, and like, that's so... So it interests me because I guess... When you said vein system, I was thinking about capillaries and how they're, they're very little and there's lots and lots of, like, there's lots and lots of them, right? So it made me wonder if it was possible to do sort of a magical irrigation of an area, basically. Um, like, to spread the magic a little further so you get a little bit more of that extra, like, plant growth or whatever you're trying to do further away from the line itself. Um, but, yeah. Anyway. No, that's fine. It's, uh, I, I am glad that so far the discussion has already yielded one interesting question. <laughs> yep. And actually, I remember something like that existing in not only the forum, uh, the original forum thread, but also in uh, season zero of the Xanthuru content, um, there was something referred to as a diffusion array in the city of Tolvera that was doing just that. That's neat. Yeah. That's how uh, that's how things go sometimes, you know, because when you're working with a resource, sometimes the question is, well, how best do we disperse this resource or conversely, how best do we hoard this resource? Right. And that's one of the things like like with water. That's one of the, the things in desert areas. Um, yeah. Can you ma- can you make irrigation? Can you make a canal? Right. Right. Exactly. And not that magic is is water, but. Water is very important, and magic is really important to this world. So, it very much is, which uh, brings up one of the other closer to concrete, solid, cast in stone, or written in steel rules. You can't hang on to it. So, you can't store it up and leave the ley line and use it later. You can, but not indefinitely. There, there are methods, and it is rare and highly coveted because the resources, at least in the Alteran area, are a little scarce, but lay energy can be temporarily encapsulated in crystalline structures. Uh, that is to say, stored in gemstones. Which are incredibly difficult to come by. Yeah. <laughs> 
as we talked about in the races episode, you may want to go back and listen to that one if you if you are confused. But uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And as they found out, it's not a permanent solution either because no matter how good you are at manipulating this energy source and how hard you try or how creative you get about it, eventually that energy will return to the lines. Because that's where they want to be. That's where it belongs. I like this metaphor of water that we have going on here because it really does illustrate a lot of the points that Josh is making. Like, you can go to a river and scoop water out of it with your hands and drink it. You can scoop water out of it with your hands and throw it on the last smoldering embers of a campfire so that you don't start a forest fire when you leave your campsite. Which you should definitely do. You can scoop it up with your hands and throw it at your friend because you want to start a splash fight. (laughs) But the one thing you really can't do is scoop it up with your hands and carry around a fistful of it because it's going to drain out eventually. Yeah, because your hands are not not watertight. Just in case somebody around the world who is listening to this thought that that was how it works. It's definitely not. Unless you're a frog person, in which case, please reach out to us because we want to meet you. Yeah, I definitely want to meet a frog person. That would be fantastic. So I think the other thing that I like about about the, the water metaphor is the its desire to return to where where it was taken from. Like, it's desire to be in the ley lines. It's where it lives. Yeah, but, like, that's that's just where it belongs. I don't know. I just, I, I like the, the water metaphor. It makes me happy. And it's it's very appropriate, again, because this is something that they discovered over time does flow. You can remove it, but it always returns. It goes somewhere once a year. Nobody's really sure where. There's a lot of theories on to the how or the why or the what and the when. Well, the when's pretty concrete it's kind of like clockwork um and so places that do have access to these crystals and these gemstones would probably also be able to get through this period of it going away which i'm guessing we're about to segue into because while nobody else has access to the energy you have it so if one of your people gets sick or injured you can heal them You can keep your food from spoiling. You can light a fire and keep from freezing to death. Obviously, you would have to use this energy sparingly, but it can at least get you through in an emergency. Mm -hmm. But boy, howdy, do you need to have a good stockpile of it. Right. Because let me tell you something. The system for storage is inefficient as it is. That inefficiency level skyrockets during that time of year. Yeah. So it's like trying to store a current video game on a computer built in 1985. <laughs> it's it's not going to work very well. There are not enough floppy disks in the entire world to store that much information. I was actually reading something just the other day where somebody did the math and the entire Nintendo 64 library would fit on one Switch cartridge. Wow. Where's that release? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Okay, Banjo-Kazooie, Banjo-Tooie. I would like both of those right now on a Switch cartridge. Thanks very much. With room to spare. So yeah, or it's like, you know, putting water in a water bottle and keeping it at room temperature during most of the year. And then when the light goes away, 
you chuck it in your car on a Florida summer day, it's going to evaporate faster. Yep, yep, yep. I was thinking that if you if you leave the water bottle in a car overnight in the ice or in the snow, because that's where I come from, it's ice and you can't use it. <laughs> and it's really hard to thaw it out. So tell us more about this period where where the light just goes away. Yeah, not a problem. It's a apparently naturally occurring phenomenon. I mean, obviously nobody's really had the chance to have a good chat with whoever or whatever made the planet in the first place and set up the network, but it's been going on as long as people have been able to be aware that it's going on. Every year like clockwork, winter ends, spring doesn't start. The light just goes away somewhere. Nobody knows, at least as far as the Altaran continent is concerned, where that energy goes off to or why. They just know that it's gone and things suck. Yeah, and it affects everyone equally, I would assume. Well, not equally, but... Well, I mean, I'm going to assume it affects everyone equally unless you're dealing with someone who isn't alive. Isn't alive. So that that, that should cover a pretty good spectrum, right? I mean, yeah, I guess that's fair. <laughs> Yeah, because any any sort of inequality rising from this would be in their advantages or disadvantages in being able to prepare for this. Yeah, prepare and and get through this period of of nothing. Yeah, like if you take a rich human person from the city of Tolvera and put them next to a really poor person from a farm next to a couple of own from competing tribes the two humans are going to be affected the same and the two own are going to be affected the same. And those two groups are also going to be affected the same relative to like, obviously their own species affecting how they handle it. Notice you still got some grain stockpiled. Yeah. A real shame if something happened to it. <laughs> so that actually, that does uh, bring up the question. Does, does the, the period of, of no magic, does it affect the own as much as it does the other races who kind of depend on the magic? Because they don't tend to care about the magic as much as we discussed in the races episode. So they arguably make out the best of all the species, because if anything, having access to no magic whatsoever makes it even more difficult to say no. That's true. Yes. It would be very difficult to stand up to an own that says, I want the rest of your whatever you have left. Um, give me that that cattle. I want it. Um, well, given that I can no longer throw a fireball at you, I guess it's okay. <laughs> Enjoy your new cattle. <laughs> is, is there a name for this time of year? It depends on which species you're talking to. They all have their own little uh, idioms. But it is generally referred to as the season of the serpent, or snake, or the dark season. Dep again, depends on who you're talking to. Most areas of the Alteran continent work off of a, for lack of a better, more unique term, a zodiac system of assorted animals whose constellations are visible throughout the course of the year. Starts at the beginning with the ram, with the start of spring, goes all the way to the end of the year with the serpent, when everything sucks. Serpents always get the bad rap. <laughs> yeah, well. 
When your hunter-gatherers and serpents are often a sign of, I'm about to die because this thing just bit me. That's fair. That's fair. Um, so I'm curious as to how it affects people like the Silva or the Baralanx, um, in terms of, because they, because they do use that, they do use the magics a lot and they're very good at it. Mm -hmm. And also nothing grows and the Baralanx are plant people. Right. Um, but the other, the other question is, do they actually completely rely on it knowing that there are those weeks where you won't have those however long however long the period is uh you don't have it or do they have ways of coping with it i guess is the is the question so as far as the bear lengths are concerned they appear to hibernate for lack of a better term even though they are plant-based and hibernation is more of a insectoid slash mammalian trait Yes. You can always tell when the bad time of the year is coming because wintertime is particularly drab for most species in general. But when you are living plants and start doing things like changing color into losing your foliage into, yeah, things are starting to die. That's kind of depressing. We'll still honor the dead, have a nice little somewhat somber party about it. And then we're going to take all of our local foliage and make these nice tight domes of plant matter and root matter that nobody else can really get into. And we'll see you guys in the spring. We'll see you when everything's back to normal. Don't worry. It's going to be a great party. Yeah. We'll have a great party once, once, we, can, once we can actually come out and visit. And I imagine that's pretty universal for any sapient culture on this planet that experiences this phenomenon is you have a real big freaking party when the life energy comes back. Heck yeah. It, it's generally pretty celebrated because, hey, look, we get to live another year. <laughs> yeah, yay, we didn't die. I mean, yay, we didn't die is the basis of a lot of our celebrations that go back that far. That's true, yeah. It, it, it's even more particularly emphasized because so when there's no lay energy it's not just a matter of hey things suck nothing's growing there's no you know new plant vegetation that we can even subsist off of life just kind of stops in the absence of the lay energy not only does nothing grow but nothing is born hmm. if you become injured wounds don't heal oh and while it can be used to some benefit, obviously, nothing's going to decay if life isn't going on, because decay is part of the breakdown of cellular structure that is part of the natural life cycle. So any food you have stored up isn't going to rot, at least. Well, that's helpful. But you have to have enough food stored up to get through this period of time. Yeah. And it's also much more difficult to defend. Because, again, if you get hurt, it doesn't heal. And you can't force it to heal generally using whatever little light energy you might have stockpiled if you're particularly wealthy. So spring coming again is a really, really, really big deal. If someone is sick when the month of the serpent begins, 
how does that affect them? Do the back do, do they get better because the virus or the bacteria is no longer attacking them, or do they just stay sick until spring comes? Pretty much stay sick, because obviously the bacteria or the virus can't reproduce, and the body can't. Not that they would know this, because that's more of a modern conceptualization of medicine. Antibodies can't be produced to fight it, so it's kind of a stalemate. So imagine just being stuck with pneumonia for a month because you can't get rid of it and it can't kill you. Being stuck with pneumonia just in general is terrible. I can't imagine being stuck with it for a month, not, not getting any better, not, not doing anything except existing. And I imagine that it's pretty dangerous for high-risk individuals because just because the bacteria can't kill you directly doesn't mean that you can't die of secondary effects because you're not able to get better. True. Well, and the other thing too, like when spring actually does happen and you still have pneumonia, what, like, obviously you could go to a healer as soon as spring happens and go, please fix it. (laughs) It would be, if, if it were me, all right, I would be banging on the local healer's door. You will fix me right now. (laughs) I'm done with this. (laughs) Let me in. Why are you closed? Tell us why you're closed. (laughs) Tell us why you're closed. On what right do you deny the people? (laughs) We'll we'll, uh, put a link to the video that we're referencing. It's a grown man going crazy because one entrance to a local mall in Toronto is locked. It it highlights the, the express intelligence of the general masses. Anyway... Yeah. So when I say things suck for a month, I mean things really, really, really suck for a month. Yeah. So like your cha- your 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 life really changes in this in this month. Um, I I mean it's not so much life as just existence for a month. <laughs> yeah, because also there's not really a whole lot of work you can do to prepare for spring. All of that would have to be done in winter, because say the month of the serpent the drab season comes along and you're a farmer and you're getting ready for the spring and so you're lifting all these huge bags of seeds around and you throw your back out now you cannot heal you're stuck with a thrown out back for the rest of the month which means you also cannot help care for or protect your family yeah and you don't get to finish your prep work either it's a double whammy Man, I would use that entire month just to knit. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Always look on the bright side of life. I imagine it's a time of reflection and personal growth in some ways for a lot of cultures because there's nothing else to do. A lot of books get written. (laughs) Not by the Silva. Well, yeah. I mean, maybe. Factual books, maybe. Yeah. This is this is the history of this year. <laughs> this is what happened on this day and this day and this day. <laughs> or again, you might have that one renegade who decided, you know what? I really want to write a novel. It's true. No one will ever know. <laughs> so what made you decide to go with, first of all, a soft magic system in particular and to really integrate the concept of magic as a source of life as deeply as you did for Xanthuru. 
So the short, quick answer is I wanted to. Which is a valid answer. That is absolutely valid. The beginning of the slightly longer answer is I'm a creative person. I hang out with creative types. We like creating things together. I like it when people are creative. I like when people are passionate about the things they're creating. It makes me happy. It gives me the warm fuzzies. Hello, podcast. Exactly. (laughs) Hello, internet. I love you all. You're beautiful people. Tell me about what makes you happy. It will make me happy too. So what I wanted when I was designing a magic system, and because this was designed from its inception to be played in at least a forum-based role-playing aspect of individuals responding to one another back and forth, and then eventually with the Season Zero content, a tabletop role-playing game, I didn't want there to be a very hard, rigid set of restrictions as to what people could do with magic. Because, like, don't get me wrong, I like D&D, I like Pathfinder. There's something particularly annoying about the concept of, well, the fighter can swing his sword as much as he wants in any given day. The rogue can backstab people as many times as he wants. The druid can backstab people as many times. I mean... That's a reference to our private game (laughs) where the druid is a dual class rogue, but no one knows he's a dual class rogue. We've rolled insight to check him and he's beaten us every time. It's kind of fantastic. I mean, I have rolled ones more, more often than anything else when insight checking this. Anyway. It's it's kind of fantastic. (laughs) But anyways, so it always struck me as a little bit silly that within the realms of most standard RPG settings, magic users kind of get shafted. Yes, spells are powerful. That's completely understandable. From a gameplay perspective, there does need to be some level of limitation. But limiting the sheer amount of your capacity to do it always struck a bone with me. Number of spells per day, number of spells known, having concrete spells to begin with, Like, okay, I'm a wizard. I can know magic missile, mage armor, fireball, lightning bolt, eventually meteor swarm. I can cast meteor swarm twice. I'm the greatest wizard in all the lands. Or the thing that gets me is the lack of application outside of fighting things. You know, in in fiction, in a fantasy novel or a text-based roleplay, the wizard might be able to use elemental magic to temporarily freeze a spot on a river so that the party can walk across the ice and cross the river. But in a lot of tabletop settings, unless your GM is really flexible and willing to work with you on that, which not a lot of them are that I've met, you're not going to be able to do that. You can cast Ray of Frost, but you can't use ice to create a bridge. Yeah, r- You know how many Ray of Frost it would take to freeze a moving body of water? Ray of Frost is not a lot of damage. You'd get a little sheet of thin ice that would immediately start floating downstream if the river was doing anything more than, you know, standing still. But that's my point. If they know Ray of Frost, they know how to create ice. Why can't they just... Because those are the things that are hard-coded into the magic system. But no, I didn't want that. (laughs) It's one of those things where, like, that's one of my, like, my least favorite part of tabletop role-playing games is combat, period. My least favorite part out of every tabletop game I've ever played is combat. So if a magic user is is 
relegated to only using magic during combat, I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> That's why I pick classes that I can bash the crap out of things, because I don't have to worry about not being able to use half of my character sheet unless we're in stupid combat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, casters in, in more defined magic systems and tabletop play usually have to decide, do I want to be useful in combat or do I want to be useful out of combat or do I want to be half useful in both? And other characters do not seem to have that as much. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, how how strong a fighter is is going to come into play whether they're hitting something with a sword or trying to climb, leap, whatever to get over obstacles outside of a combat situation. Or, you know, maybe they're just trying to win an arm wrestling contest at the local bar. That strength score is always going to matter. Right. Mm-hmm. So when I was designing the magic system for Zenthuru, I wanted a magic system that was, one, unrestricted in what you could do with it, and relatively unrestricted in how often you could use it. And for what? Right. And I think that's that's a good way to approach it if you want your players or or the people you're writing with to to be able to be creative. Not saying that hard and fast magic systems don't allow you to be creative because they do, um, just in in a very structured kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see that, for example, with Mistborn. Right. That that was actually my, the first thing that came to my mind. Of course, it is. Um, yeah, you see that with Mistborn. There are specific ways that the magic system interacts or the characters interact with the magic system. Um, and But there can be different results from using the magic in that system. What's that? You need to get somewhere in a hurry? Good thing you got a pocket full of change. <laughs> exactly. And it's not for paying the bus. <laughs> And I, and I think that, to me personally, that's important in a fantasy setting, you know, whether you have a hard magic system or a soft magic system, because I like both. There are places for both, and there's places for ones that are more in the middle. But whether you have hard or soft, I don't want my fantasy setting to be medieval Europe with fireballs. If you're going to put magic into your world, personally, I prefer it to intersect with all ways of life how can we use this to make our lives better how can we use this to have fun or advanced technology or you know things of that nature because if you give human beings a resource and if you give other non-human sapient beings a resource they're going to play with it yeah and that was another reason i wanted a less restricted magic system is because since i had you know figured from the inception that i wanted to do unique races that filled the same fantasy niches without being elves and dwarves and gnomes and goblins and what have you that I wanted there to be room for expressiveness in how that magic is used. Every species that we've talked about that I made for the Altaran continent approaches channeling lay energy slightly differently and none of them are wrong because they're all bound by the same hard rules and navigate around the soft rules in ways that are appropriate for their culture. Like the fact that you cannot legitimately intently cause harm with lay energy is fine for the Silva. They don't care. They wouldn't even try to do that anyways. The, that just makes me think like the own, that would be the only reason that the own would actually even try to, to use lay energy as if they could do that directly. But 
or create or performing larger feats like using the light to enhance your strength or speed so that you can run faster than the other guy and win another name right and that is about the extent to how they use it too the own by and large will primarily use lay energy channeling to just amplify their own physical attributes or in the instances of a pinch regenerate oh i'm hurt let's close this up and that was actually going to be one of my next questions is is self-healing possible but you just answered it yeah it absolutely is and obviously your mileage may vary as to how exactly it's done but by and large it's primarily just increasing the rate at which cell division happens so that the damage repairs itself for some people anyways yeah so let's talk about cost because as we all know magic comes at a price what is expended to use to channel the light is it physical energy is it mental and emotional energy is it yes i'm guessing there's no blood sacrifices or components involved in this given how we've described it it d- does tend to vary from individual to individual and species to species, but by and large, it is an exercise in will because, and this is again, partially why the Onyurek are not particularly known for their channelers is because they're not the most, I wouldn't say that they're not the most strong-willed because they can be very belligerent and stubborn as we found out, but they're less inclined to exert will in the terms of trying to convince an energy source that you can feel all around you to do something for you. Instead of scooping up the water, they're trying to just grab fistfuls of it. And not only that, to slightly use but also draw away from the water parallel, convincing the water to be held by you in the first place. Because keep in mind, the water likes being in the stream. That's where it lives. When you want to pull some out of it, you basically have to negotiate with the water. Right, and the own aren't really good at negotiating unless it's, I am taking this now, I want it, give it. (laughs) And so in the case of if somebody were to, say, over-channel, draw on the light for longer or more amounts than they really should, you would start to see things like maybe mental fatigue, headaches, not being able to like hold on to it anymore. You might grab onto it and it just slips through your fingers, that sort of thing. Well, let's, let's, let's again play with our water metaphor that we've been building, and we're trying to scoop water out. Now, what's going to happen when you cup your hands and try to scoop up water? Anything that your hands cannot hold is just going to fall away to begin with. Now, let's say you're trying a slightly different approach and doing something completely ridiculous and taking each hand and kind of pinwheeling them from behind you just trying to wild flail as much water up out of the river as you can that mental image is great just like straight up looney tunes arms pinwheeling around so much that they blur trying to scoop water out of this river pulling aside the cartoony reference of pinwheeling arms what's eventually going to happen to your arms ow Because you're doing something so wastefully inefficient as trying to displace that much water as you can, you're going to start getting arm strain. You're going to start risking tearing a rotator cuff because you're doing something with your arm so much so often that really shouldn't be done. And 
therein is the parallel is an individual is only going to be so capable of drawing on this energy to such an extent before they start facing some form of repercussion, whether as you mentioned, mental fatigue, physical fatigue, sometimes it's really going to depend on how they're approaching it. And even further, if they keep pushing beyond that point. That metaphor just makes me laugh, but it's, it's accurate. I like it. It's very visual. And that is where skill comes into play. Obviously, the more you work with manipulating the light, the more you can develop more intuitive or reflexive natural ways of working around those shortcomings. Like, okay, maybe if you stop trying to make the tiny little scoops with your hands and fan them out a little bit and, you know, scoop that way, you can hang on to a little bit more for a little longer before it starts falling through your fingers so on and so forth, or grab a bucket. I was going to say, in the, in the case of developing technology that is powered by the light, just use a bottle. You yourself as a person may only be able to pull so much water out of the river at once, but if you employ a tool to help assist you, you can work with a little more. And that is where the base concept of foci come into play. Most people who specialize in lay channeling as a means of whatever it is they do, will employ some form of particular device item that acts as basically a tool, something that enables them to work just a little bit better, a little more efficiently, even if it's just in terms of boosting morale. It doesn't even necessarily be something that has to make logical sense like the bucket metaphor. If it's something that, you know, oh, hey, this staff was used by my grandfather and he was a great lay channeler. If I use his staff, I'll be a great lay channeler too. Just that little bit of extra mental fortitude can make the difference in being able to pull out just a little more of that energy than you would be able to otherwise. So that kind of reminds me of something Um, in my actual personal life, my real life. uh, I wear a necklace every single day. Um... And depending on, on what I need from that day, I wear a different necklace. So if I need strength, I have a Thor's hammer that I wear. If I need a little bit of luck, I wear a fish hook that my husband got me um, from New Zealand that is like a carved whalebone fish hook. Um, and if I need protection from evil spirits that want to attack me. Um, I have uh, another, it's called a manaya, which is, it's like a fish bird person that protects you from evil spirits. Um, if I'm feeling particularly down, I wear that one because it helps helps get the evil spirits that are making me feel sad away. Um, <laughs> or at least that's my, like, I wish I lived in a fantasy novel version of, <laughs> of my, like, sad days. Um <laughs> But but that's kind of what it reminds me of, these these the focuses that they the like, oh yes, this was my grandfather's staff. He was great at channeling. I'm gonna I'm gonna carry it and I'm gonna use it and it'll make me better at it because because it has emotional uh uh meaning to it. Um but yeah. There's my example, my real world example. But again, we've done that thing that we've mentioned in previous episodes that we've loved doing and we've established a connection. Yeah. Something that we've added to the world that I've been building that, well, that I added to the world that I have been building that someone was able to relate to. 
and make that connection. It's like, oh, hey, I do something like that. And that gets that little bit of extra bit of investiture. Yeah. And we like investiture. It's pretty cool stuff. (laughs) Just a little bit. Just kind of, you know. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that's like, that's that's one of the goals of writing or creating on in a world is is to find ways that you can connect with readers or players if you're doing this for a role-playing game like we are like find those ways that you can connect with people because that's kind of what we all want to do anyway is connect with each other so we are incredibly social creatures even those of us who like to be left alone sometimes (laughs) i'm never i'm never one of those people oh my gosh (laughs) but yeah um, as far as going too far, because it can happen. It does happen. It has happened in the past and it will probably happen in the future. Sometimes people just, for whatever reason, don't listen. Real, real life too. Just. Yeah, exactly. They might not listen or they might just be that desperate. Exactly. And sometimes that desperation can pay off. See previous episode, Zan. Other times, you wind up paying the price. Yep. Because as we've established in this episode so far, talking about this magic system, this energy has basically a will of its own. It is there on the planet to be part of it, to encourage life. It doesn't like hurting things, and it likes to stay where it is. If you are too persistent, trying to take too much for too long, you're going to wind up with a contest of wills and... An energy system that spans an entire planet the size of Jupiter is going to have a lot of will. Yeah, it's going to have a lot more than you do. (laughs) And the results are not always pleasant or pretty or both. I mean, considering that there are two dead zones on Altairan, yeah, not very pretty. (laughs) I mean, not to mention that if channeling is in part an exercise of will and you lose a contest of wills with the light itself you might end up losing yourself and just becoming nothing. Yep. That's a terrifying concept, honestly. One of those just like, it's, it's, it brings up the, the idea of what is, um, what is humanity? Like what, what is your actual soul? What are you, you know, like, like if you lose that contest of will, what's left? Um, it's a really interesting sort of philosophical question, I guess. Uh, <laughs> you don't get those very much from me, but. Uh <laughs> but again, something that happened because of something that I made. Yeah. Willfully and intentfully to bring about those kinds of questions. Because obviously, you know, I could have sworn I've heard somebody say this a couple times in the past, but something about massive amounts of power and massive amounts of responsibility. <laughs> yeah, once or twice, you know. And now I really want some rice. Hmm. <laughs> Not that kind, though. We have better rice. This is true. <laughs> so I think that just about wraps up this episode. Yeah, this seems like a pretty good place to uh, let this one rejoin the stream. Oh. At twitch.tv slash Studios. Da 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 da. <laughs> no fan questions this time because I was lazy and didn't ask the Discord in time for anybody to actually ask anything. Um, <laughs> but that's our fault, not yours. But so next time, 
we have a bit of an exciting episode or two episodes we're not really sure yet we'll see how it goes um josh had mentioned wanting people to be able to play and create in this world and next episode we're going to be exploring what happens when he lets his favorite little gremlins onto his playground everybody's welcome in the sandbox bring your tools <laughs> so look forward to the special expansion pack edition of the world builders and so exciting and i just can't hide it so uh yeah if you'd like to contact us, you can do so by shooting us an email at worldbuilders at rhinobot.net or by tweeting us at Rhinobot Studios. We'll be glad to answer fan questions on air, but as always, please be advised we record well in advance, so it may take us several episodes to get to your questions, but we will get to your questions. And they will be answered. But you may not like the answer that you receive. But we'll definitely answer them. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And as always, we will see you next time. Bye-bye! Bye! This show is a member of the Rhinobot Studios family. For more information, including show listings team member bios, social media links, and our community discord, please visit rhinobot.net.